I'm Kathy Bird, and this is the Fresh Art International Show on Jolt Radio, Miami, Florida. Good morning, everyone. We're thrilled to have you join us for our first broadcast from Miami. The show grows from a contemporary art podcast that I've been producing for five years this month. If you visit freshartinternational.com today, you can listen to my conversations with more than 100 amazing artists, curators, architects, and filmmakers. And today's guests, in fact, are artists who are part of the Fresh Art International podcast archive that you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, Android, Google Music Play, Public Radio Exchange, Acast, Podbean, YouTube, and more. So I'm really excited. This is our first live broadcast from Miami, and our first guest will be Baltimore artist Joyce J. Scott. My very first podcast episode featured Joyce, and so it happens that two weeks ago, Joyce was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship, a.k.a. a Genius Grant. This prestigious monetary award is meant to support her work and recognize all that she's done in her career. Joyce is a jewelry maker and sculptor who repositions craft, and in particular beadwork, as a potent platform for contemporary art about social and political injustices. She received a BFA in 1970 from the Maryland Institute College of Art and an MFA from the Instituto Allende in San Miguel del Allende, Mexico. And she was also trained by her mother, Elizabeth T. Scott, who was an internationally recognized fiber artist. Joyce's work has appeared in solo and group exhibitions at the Baltimore Museum of Art, the Museum of Art and Design in New York, the Fuller Craft Museum, the Smithsonian, the Met, and many others. And her work is in public and private collections around the world. Joyce will be calling into the show this morning, but first let's listen to the conversation I recorded with her in October 2011 at another important moment in her career. Curator Dan Cameron had invited Joyce to participate in the International Biennial known as Prospect New Orleans. Fresh Art International presents Art Talk, conversations about creativity in the 21st century. I'm Kathy Bird, Fresh Art producer, and today I'm speaking with Joyce Scott, a visual and performing artist based in Baltimore, Maryland. Joyce is participating in Prospect 2, New Orleans, a biennial of international contemporary art that will be on view from October 22, 2011 to January 29, 2012. Joyce is going to talk to us about how she became involved in Prospect 2. Well, Dan Cameron, the, the actual curator director, was in Baltimore, and he and you, as I remember, visited me in my gallery a Goya contemporary, and he actually invited me to be in the exhibition. There he talked about my ability to, you know, stretch and push what I do inside of the studio or inside of a, a gallery setting uh, much further out. And since I'd done these large site-specific installations before, I saw this as a perfect opportunity to uh, push myself at another time in my life, at a different era in my life. Right. Well, it's very exciting for Baltimore to be represented at the biennial. Yes, I think um, that's great, too. It's fantastic because Baltimore's always, well, got this marginal 
identity. So you're bringing us in the forefront. And I, I've lived in Baltimore for a time now, and I realize how important your role is in Prospect, too. Well, I thank you for that. And I can say that Baltimore is a city that's ripe, that's, that's chocked full of visual and performance literary artists, dancers, and uh, who have real lives here. And like any other artist, we're, we're also trying to work outside of our city. I actually gained any renown that I have outside of the city and then came home to, I've always lived here, but, but then I got more time or more heat in the city after I'd shown in and exhibited around the world a lot outside of this town. I can say that it's unfortunate because some People who view arts think that we are marginalized or squelched by our proximity to Washington, New York, and even Chicago, and that we're in that kind of dreaded triangle. Uh, it doesn't actually change the ability of artists to make really fine work. For her Prospect 2 project, Joyce took St. Veronica as her primary image and turned the saint into an African-American sage, a woman she calls Miss Veronica. Originally planned as an elaborate installation and performance in a desanctified Catholic church, the project was redesigned due to budgetary challenges. So what I'm doing now is an exhibition at Tulane New, uh, University in the Newcomb Gallery. Mm -hmm. It's a two-person show, although we are in two different galleries. Nicholas Cage, his sound suits are one. Wow. And I have my exhibition, uh, Miss Veronica. Yes. But in this exhibition, there'll be 39 different objects from sculpture to prints. And on the outside, I got to retrieve one site-specific installation. Excellent. Now, where is that going to take place? Well, I tell you, it was going to be hanging from a pole on the outside of the gallery. And as we were working uh, with my, with the people, and my installation people. That makes me sound much haughtier yes. than I am. My people. Very important, your people. Uh, I, I was just there like, so we're going to put this poll, and I was just really like, I heard myself mumbling, but like, they have these enormous trees. So I said, why don't we just hang it from a tree? Da-da-da-da. We all loved it. It was all fabulous hanging like, from a tree. Let's put me in a cherry picker now. Those of you who are listening don't understand that I'm a very large woman. So me going up on a cherry picker, that's going to be a whole drama within itself. I'm looking forward. So, I wish I could be there for that. Now, I already designed this uh, piece of sculpture that thing. It's not a person being lynched from a tree. It's a woman in a tree lynching a tree. It's What's, incredible. Joyce is known for her beaded art, but I've never seen anything at this scale. It's, it's very, very large. It's, it's the largest thing of this exact type that I've done. And what I did was, as soon as I said, oh, of course, I'll put it in the tree down there. I went home and thought, oh, no, because uh, I have to now change it because I'm going to put it in a tree. So, so did I, that mean you had to make it bigger? I not only had to make it bigger because it was going to be farther away. So right. visually, for it to remain commanding, it would have to be larger. I'd have to think about how I was going to wrap it around a tree branch in contrast to a pole, which you can put on the ground or very close and make it, of course, very easy to work with. Well, now we have to go up in the cherry picker in a tree. I mean, I lost my mind. What we're talking about now is I designed this so that it would work. Also, it's done with these clear 
translucent, shiny beads that get their color from the thread that's sewn into them. But that also means that they're going to glisten magnificently. Amazing. So what is the scale of this woman? When she is installed and body contorted properly, yes. she'll probably be around five and a half feet by four feet. Right. And, and then there'll be a tree. tree. How high oh, the tree? at least 17 feet. The work on the inside has is, is emblematic of what I do. I do a lot of work on beauty, but I also do a lot of work on social and political issues. So there'll be stuff. Um, I'm doing a whole section called Still Funny about what humor is in regard to race and sex. Sometimes separately, sometimes right. together. If it's humor, if it's funny, is it still funny because it came out of different social and cultural, you know, dilemma that we experienced in the 50s, 40s, 60s. Is it still funny? Can it be fun? Can we laugh at stuff that's dark and mean-spirited? Can it still be funny? I'm very proud of that exhibition. Then I have a second exhibition at Dillard University in mm -hmm. their gallery called Tide Fit, and it is six very small pieces from a series that I've done called, and am still working on, called Day After Rape. It's about the sexual objectification of women and how we are fodder or instruments in war. So there are little pieces about women like in, in Darfur or in Bosnia who have been used as fodder in war. They are raped, they are killed, they're mutilated, they're left as signposts. And then there are also, there's a, a suite of, of uh, prints that I did also. So that's going to be a very tiny, sweet exhibition. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to have um, a teaser show at Gallery I.O., which is Thomas Mann, a very famous jeweler. I love him, and he's fabulous. He only has his own studio and his own gallery in New Orleans. He lives in New Orleans. And we're going to do a teaser show of the jewelry that I make. Some are my pieces, but there are other pieces that I'm doing collaboratively with two uh, youngins, uh, Shana Kreutz and Lauren Schott from Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And then there's one other thing, and that's the um, the performance yes, at the I was gonna ask healing. You. It's a, it's a it's a healing space, and in it, because there are lots of venues in it, you know, like mm -hmm. the shops and other things. Right. And there's something called Gallery Istanbul, which was a gallery that used to exist in the French Quarter and was very popular. Well, now it's they've opened it, and it's opening, I think, for uh, P2. And this is one of those situations where I'm glad that I'm 62 and have the ability to be, to change, to be a chameleon and have spent years on the road as, as quite honestly, like a vaudeville cabaret right. performer. Because I had built the idea and began writing the performance to do inside the church, which was a pristine oh. area, which and we would build the lighting for it, and I, the whole thing was different. Now we're going to be in cafe, in a cafe setting that opens on the day in the afternoon of the entire opening. The twenty second. Yes, I've changed the performance very much because it it really is meant now to be in a very different venue. I have two singers and a tuba player and a guitarist who will be my musical uh, attendants and, and uh, players. And this performance is really going to be on the rift or, or, or the relationship between contemporary men and women. Now, I, 62, 
I thought that I wasn't going to do any more performances like this. I would just keep singing because my last show called Walk a Mile in My Drawers, yes, that was the name of it, um, was everything I wanted. I had a, a real director, a lighting uh, right. designer. I had. I, I got to do a CD. Where we did got, you um, do this? We did this at the Theater Project here in Baltimore. Uh-huh. Uh, we got an NEA grant, so we had enough money to produce a real show and it was so much work and I also haven't said that I have two rotten knees so I'm performing with a cane oh my goodness and that's a cane you walk with not anything else that you're thinking about you dirty minded audiences and so I thought like this will probably be it but when this opportunity came how could you resist how could I resist it and I had great grand ideas about the church but now thank god I had all these years of performing as a solo artist and with my one of my partners was some Kayla Wall and we were the Thunder Thigh Review and we performed lots of places doing bringing back the cabaret right. uh, vaudeville kind so of two-person comedy So you're thrilled about thing. this opportunity now. I'm thrilled that I'm ready. I'm ready to take the chance because part of what can happen is that you your uh, spark wings. You start mm-hmm. thinking, well, I've done that for a really long time, and if I can't do what I want, then why am I killing myself? And so I had to. Ignite, reignite inside of me that idea that, you know, but you've never done, but I have to see, I've performed in New Orleans. I've yes. done this. I've worked in New Orleans. So I thought the Thunder Thighs worked there with Jimmy Wilson, who's a fabulous trumpet. I mean, you know, we, we did a lot of things. I've already worked this. So how do you keep it interesting and hot for yourself? Well, I've never had the ability to uh, talk and do this in 40 minutes, have two Singers that I and, and and I always wanted tuba player and, you and got a guitarist. It. You now, got I have it. That's the thing. That's what's getting me exciting. The fa- excited. The idea that I can do that one more time, and that it can be a quality presentation. That this is an international uh, biennale, and that the people from around the world will be interested. And in fact dig excited by what I do. You ruined me. I was just a baby. You not yet a man who did that to you. Hi there. Joyce? Joyce Scott is calling in at this very moment. And I'm, I'm here. Hi, Joyce. Good morning. Good morning. I kind of have that Louis Armstrong morning voice. You do. My <laughs> goodness. I was so thrilled to hear your voice again listening to that podcast that we recorded together years ago. Yeah. Pretty exciting. Congratulations on your success, love. Thank you. I was so happy that you agreed to be my first guest on my first radio show, and you were my first guest on Fresh Heart International to begin with, and you've always been a supporter of my work no matter what I was doing, and I I appreciate it so much. It's great to hear your voice. Great, great, great. So where are you today? Today, I'm in Miami, Florida. I know. I That's pretty. (laughs) And are you wearing a a giant... uh, uh, Anti Zika outfit or something. I actually have floaties on because the hurricane's headed. <laughs> okay, well that's good. <laughs> but 
I'm excited to share another great moment in your life with you, this MacArthur Genius Award. It's so amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think people uh, put my name and genius together. That's the part they think is amazing. But I want you to know it's been a very, very heartwarming and heartfelt receipt because I've received many messages from friends around the world, actually, were saying that they were happy I got it, why did it take so long, you know, and that no one better than me. And it really makes you feel great when people just don't say, go spend that money. They say you were the right choice. Yeah, but I am wondering how you're going to spend that money. (laughs) Liposuction. (laughs) Aha, very funny. Um, I'm not joking. Yeah, I am joking, guys. I am. Yeah, I'm sure you have some amazing projects that you're working on right now. Um, well, you know, I am working on some good projects, but I and I'll tell you about them if if you wish. But this this, you know, I'm one of those um, people who came from really hardworking folks who my parents were sharecroppers. They were sharecroppers before they came to Maryland and and worked in these various very hard jobs like housekeeping and maid. My father worked at Bethlehem Steel. And so they always had a gig or two. And it's the same with me. I've always had job, job, jobs. And because I didn't want to work at one job, I've always been self-employed. So I'd be, you know, traveling around the country all the time. In fact, the world working. And at 67, this money can say to me, sit down, you fool. You know, I'll have more time to just um, look stupid in the studio. (laughs) Well, I know your work and the amount of time you spend in the studio being a glass artist and working with beads. I think it'd be really great to talk about, like, why you chose that medium. I mean, I know you're a performer and you also do printmaking, but... Why, I'm sure a lot of people, I mean, we love your work. It's so gorgeous. Why glass? Okay. I think I should start by saying I'm not a a glass artist. I'm an artist who employs glass in my practice. And I say that because there are glass artists out there who can tell you the A to Z of what makes glass glass. And and I'm not that. I was, you know, an ex-hippie looking for translucency and myself. (laughs) <laughs> in the world and in my, you know, my practice. So it really had to do with after years being a textile artist and, and just wanting to deal with translucency and light differently. Yeah. Also, in 1976, the bicentennial year, I went back to Haystack Mountain School of Crafts and learned the peyote stitch or slash diagonal weaving. Remember, I've got that early morning voice, so please forgive me, um, from a Native American teacher. And it changed what I could do, not only with translucency, but with this, with the improvisational spirit. And since I like to improvise, in fact, since I'm very itchy and can't stay still, idea-wise, when I had the opportunity to consistently work with glass and, and integrate the beadwork, which is generally glass, with glass by fusing or any other way I can connect them, it seemed like, you know, a really good choice. Well, I'm wondering if glass, like what the metaphoric quality is of using beads and this transparent and translucent materials and all the colors, I mean, that plays into the messages of your work. Well, some people also think of it like being stained glass 
work, so something that has some spirituality and reverence to it. I I am a lover of flame. I like that kind of light, but I can't work with it because I'll just melt everything. So this was also a great way for me to collaboratively work with others and be able to submit to their skill and to no matter how many drawings I did and explain things to them, it would still look like sort of what I made and how I'd have to submit to someone else's uh, skill and vision as well. Now that for someone who works in the studio by herself may or may not be difficult. For me, it was another enlightening thing because it stretched what I could do. You know, you have to do it anyway. And after years of working with Kayla Wallace at Thunder Thigh Review, and writing work and, you know, performing it and then writing music, you know, you, you have to collaborate with others. But uh, for years, I just been making the stuff myself. So this was also a nice spin for me, an evolutionary step. Well, I think it's pretty exciting. And I'm, I'm thinking about when we talked and other interviews you've had and just knowing your work itself about how important it is for you to make social and political statements right. in your work. And I just wondered how have the issues changed? How have the issues changed since you began making art? You know, the wildest thing about life, for me at least, is how it's all the same. We still have just horrendous misogyny. I mean, look at our political system right now. I was raised in the '60s and the '70s is when I started to have a young adult voice. You know, and I look at black men and women being shot down once a week. It hasn't changed much the way that I view my life and move through my my town and my society. And then when you travel around the world I uh, and think about all the places in Africa that I went that are pretty amazing, but then Syria is six years of destroying an ancient, ancient historic place. I don't know how much it, how much it has changed. I think with humans, it had maybe the technology has changed, but we still dislike and hate who we hate. You know what I mean? So it, it's a never-ending for me um, cataloging or documenting of of the human kind of condition. And since I'm a human and I'm a part of this condition. And and my best voice is as an artist. That's what I have to work on. Now, I want to also add that I don't believe that artists have to be politically and socially oriented. It's just what I want to do, what I, in fact, have to do. Well, what I like about your work is that because even though you're making these really important statements, you have never sacrificed aesthetics in the name of no. making a statement. I, I think that's, for me, what a, if I didn't care about the aesthetics or did not wish to become better at it, then I really should become a politician or something else. But I want the artwork to be so stellar that not only do I want to consistently work at it, I want people to want to consistently view it. And it seems to me that especially with something that is so craft related that you just have to get better at it all the time, you know? Yeah. Definitely. Well, I'm I'm hoping I know this award is going to is stimulating work when you have time to get back to work after all the interviews. I'm sure you're being asked to do right now. <laughs> I um, have done a lot of interviews. I lost my singing voice around 
two and a half months ago and I've been going to therapy. But I can tell you, uh, talking so much, it's like I do sound like Eartha Kitt, <laughs> uh, Louis Armstrong, and a little Miss Piggy rolled in. So well, we, I, I do get that. <laughs> we we have heard your other voice this morning, too. But yeah, can I you tell us too. about one project that you're working on that you're especially excited about? Uh, that might Well, I'm working on a project at 108 Contemporary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with Sonia Clark, who is an amazing artist. Yes. Um, it started for me because 108 is in um, the neighborhood where Black Wall Street was when it was destroyed, I think, in the 20s. And Black Wall Street, for those of you who don't know, was an area in Tulsa that was all African-American and was so prosperous that they they were a tiny municipality, even though they were just a neighborhood. They had their own schools, their own, you know, stores, bus systems, you name it. Well, it really started um, getting to me years ago as I kept looking at the history because of the Trail of Tears, that long march. And as I kept doing research about Tulsa, and remember, we've got real uprest, um, unrest happening in Tulsa right now, which is swinging right back around to me about the political issues in that city. And a lot of people don't know that the Trail of Tears, which was a forced march of, of indigenous people from the East Coast to, to Oklahoma, that between a quarter and a third of those folks who also died on that road were the African and African-American slaves of the indigenous people. That to me is like, hey, now that's a history. That is a history I didn't know anything about. <laughs> and so what happened to those people after the Civil War ended and they were now living in Oklahoma? And were any of those people the descendants did they have descendants who lived in Wall Street and once again had a terrible tragedy and had to move from that area? And I, my minor research so far says, yes, there were. So I got really hot about that as an inspiration. I don't know if, what I'm going to do, and I don't think I'll have things that are overtly, you know, uh, about it, but I do believe it's very inspirational. And since... Sonia and I do so much work on identity, you know, politics, misogyny, and she's doing, and racism. These are issues that consistently rear their ugly heads in our work. This seemed like a really good kind of inspirational point for me. So when they said, would you come? I thought, yeah, but you know what I do. And they said, okay. Well, that's cool. We look forward to sharing with our listeners how. Yeah, I'm also doing a a project at Grounds for Sculpture, which is a large sculpture park outside of Trenton, New Jersey next year, where I'll have exhibitions on the inside and hopefully uh, site-specific sculptures on the outside. Very cool. Well, I'll keep the listeners posted, and maybe we'll have a chance Thank to talk you. again. Thank you, Joyce. I, I want to say, Kathy, that I am so incredibly proud of you. You've made quite a niche, and you are right there, 21st century girl with the arts. So, I, I mean, congratulations. Thank you, Joyce, and to you as well. Thanks. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. I'm Kathy Bird, and this is the Fresh Art International Show on Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. You just heard my conversation with Joyce J. Scott, a MacArthur genius, and you could hear just how amazing she is. We're happy that you joined us for our first broadcast from Miami. 
This show grows from a contemporary art podcast that I've been producing for five years this month. So it's quite a celebration for me. In fact, my next guest also appeared on Fresh International in a podcast episode that we recorded in December 2014. Welcome, Antonia Wright. Hi, thank you. Antonia explores politics and contemporary life through multidisciplinary practice, and she embraces performance, video, photography, sculpture, and poetry. And I've experienced all of those, I think, Mm -hmm. in the time I've known her. We met when I moved to Miami, and uh, her background is that she graduated from the New School University in New York City with an MFA in poetry and from the International Center for Photography. She's exhibited in the U.S. and abroad, and she's been awarded artist residencies both nationally and internationally. And she's had exhibitions at Pioneer Works in New York, Faena Art Center here. Oh, no, in Buenos Aires. There's going to be a new one coming here. The Margulis Collection at the Warehouse in, Bal- in Miami. Forgot what city I'm in. The Cisneros Fontanals Foundation, CIFO, here in Miami. Vizcaya Museums and Museum and Gardens, that's where we met. Spinello Projects. And right now she has an exhibition at Locust Projects. You. You're quite everywhere. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I wanted, before we start getting into our conversation, I'm so glad you're here with me today. Thank you very much for having me. I want to listen to our first conversation that we had in December 2014 during Miami Art Week at Vizcaya Museum and Gardens, where Antonia was one of the artists participating in the Futurist Evening at Vizcaya. Let's hear what happened. That was the sound of artist Antonia Wright's body striking and shattering a great sheet of glass suspended in scaffolding high above Vizcaya's East Terrace. We spoke minutes after she was catapulted skyward to break the glass ceiling. In her performance, suddenly, we jumped. I'm a performance artist for video and photography, and I do live work as well. And then uh, my partner, Ruben Miara, is who I collaborate with often. He was like the production engineer, and he did the design, he built the structure, he organized the team. So, yeah, he was amazing. It is a collaboration. It was an amazing piece. Thank you so much. I guess I want to know, how does it feel to break the glass ceiling? It was amazing. I want to break the glass ceiling every day for like the rest of my life. That was so fun. Just all of it, you know, it was like... It was exhilarating to watch. It felt great. It really felt great. The thing about performance is I never rehearse things ahead of time. I really feel like performance is different from theater because you don't do a run-through. You use real glass. It's all real, you know? And so a lot of people, like, I didn't know what that was going to feel like. And, I mean, I did a lot of research, but until you do it, you never know. And I really thought it was going to hurt. And I was prepared for that. I've been, like, mentally getting in that space. Prepared for pain? Yeah. I mean, I've gotten in a lot of pain for other projects, and I can handle it. And this one didn't hurt at all. It was, like, amazing. I mean, a little bit. No, it didn't hurt at all. It was really fun. And the glass felt, like, so good. I could feel the energy. The second time was so much more 
shocking or yeah. exciting than the first level you broke through? What was the purpose of having two layers? I wanted it to be like this metaphor for even when you break the glass ceiling, there's always another level. Like in our minds, there's one level, but beyond that, there's always more. There's like a million more beyond this. And so it's always just like, what is when you think you get to a place it's like you just start again, kind of growing. So that's why I wanted to make sure that there were multiple levels. And I really wanted to break that second one. And the people, a lot of people were told me I wasn't going to get that high, that it might not happen, but oh, it, felt, it, was, it. it was great. It was really, really amazing. It was exceptional. My team was really excellent. Everybody I worked with on this has been fantastic. So how did it sound to you listening back? You were so exhilarated that night. I loved capturing that. I know. Um, well, we spoke right after it happened. So it was just like very still raw and real. And I mean, I do sound so excited. My voice sounds so full of adrenaline, you know. <laughs> I think a lot of relief was going on as well because we didn't really know what was going to happen. Like I'd been rehearsing and practicing and mentally preparing and like just physically getting ready, you know, with the structure and the glass and everything. But until that moment, we didn't really know if it was going to work. I love that about field recording. When you can capture the moment, I was there, I saw you break through the glass and then had that the pleasure of catching that adrenaline in your voice for to share still today. That's yeah. what's so great about the podcast archive is evergreen. And I love that you have the sound of the glass breaking. I know. My friend Zoe Charlton, an artist based in Baltimore, was here and she actually has a movie too, which I will share with you. I didn't realize till we spoke the other day that you actually didn't have a recording of it. Well, we recorded it. We did. I had a you camera did. set up, but oh. it's different. Um, when you look at video of performance, um, it just looks like documentation. Like when you're there, like the moments between action are so full of anxiety and like anticipation and what's going to happen. And that becomes a part of the work is, you know, this time and this kind of space. And when you look at it in video, it just looks like nothing's on the screen so exactly, you really lose exactly. you're waiting what's gonna go on why are we listening yeah you know, but and it's a totally different medium like if you think about video you're thinking about you know the frame and that's it that's what the piece is and everything in the composition but when you're thinking about live performance now we're talking about scale we're talking about like the 360 degree view you know how the viewer can walk around and engage with the work so it's a totally different way of looking at it and video Unless, I mean, I always think of performance for a video or for a live audience, you know. Um, and if it's for a video, then that's, that's a different set of circumstances. Right. But I, I, love, the, I love the audio. It, it captures yeah. the emotion better than anything. I wondered what happened after that performance. What did that spark in your work having achieved that? And I noticed reading in one of the articles you've been covered recently in a lot of different places that you performed nude that that night. I did not realize you didn't have like some kind of suit on. No, I did have a suit you on. You did, okay, yeah. well that was a little error in the New York Times or in the T Herald. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, she had to have clothes on that would have been very painful. And you had this great suit on when I met you. Yeah, we so designed a suit that went along with the futurist vocabulary. Yeah, absolutely. What did the performance open up for you, Wise, in your thinking about your work? 
I mean, you learn so much with every project I do. Um, you know, it's just, it's such a process, each one, that one especially. I mean, the idea to throw yourself through glass, like the first 20 people I spoke to about it said, you know, that's impossible, you can't do it. And it's just like working backwards constantly. So in terms of engineering, we learned a tremendous amount. Um, and then you had to count on all those other people. A lot of your performances, you it seems like you're, people are recording it. I know the one we're going to be talking about in a minute, there was a team helping you. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, aren't you just, you set it up and you're... It depends on the project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes it's just about um, me and my relationship with the camera. So I'll just set my camera up on a tripod and then I'll give myself, you know, a goal or a challenge and then I'll try to do it. And it's, yeah, it's a very kind of personal private performance. But that one, no, that one required a lot of help and a lot of collaboration. I know, you had quite the team, I remember. They were behind, They were there was a huge scaffolding and then they were behind this curtain and we could not see what was going on and just barely saw the result of the great surge of energy from below that lifted you up and shot you through the glass. It was so cool. Thank you. <laughs> so let's talk about your current solo exhibition at Locust Project. That's getting a lot of attention. As I said, a New York Times feature and Miami Herald and other articles and interviews. And I feel so honored that you came Aww. to talk to me today. And that project involved breaking through a surface as well, interestingly. Yeah, it did. Um, yeah, the video, the show I currently have at Locust Projects, there's a video in the center of the gallery, and in it I'm walking on and fall through a frozen lake. Let's talk about the story behind that idea for a video. Well, when I was 15, I actually fell through a frozen lake. So the video is a reenactment of a true experience. Um, I was walking on this lake and I heard it, it started cracking. And next thing you know, I just fell in the water and I tried to climb on the ice and over and over again, it kept breaking and breaking until I realized that my toes actually could touch. And then um, I was able to sort of punch the ice over and over again until I fought my way to the edge of the lake. But it was a water reservoir, so it was actually illegal to walk on this lake. So I never told anybody about it because I was scared that I was going to get in trouble. So it was sort of like the secret that I had always. And for years afterward, and then now that I do this really physical performance work, I mean, especially with the glass, like, I remember afterward, like the day after thinking like, wow, you know, what just happened? And it was almost like this... Um, like very intense physical experience with my body that I couldn't even understand. And then like in terms of other people trying to ask me about it, like, how are you? How was that feeling? It was like my vocabulary to describe it like eluded me completely. And it always seemed like it mirrored this ice experience that I had. And I, every time I do these performances now, I always think about falling through that lake and maybe I don't know, that was like a first performance in a lot of ways. I remember feeling really cold. I mean, I had hypothermia afterward, but also feeling really excited. Like I was exhilarated by the like the whole process. Like once I was like showered and warm and everything and like for days after thinking like, wow, that was like fascinating, you know? Um, so I wanted to revisit it and now 20 years later I did. And you reenacted it on Lake Champlain. I did, yeah. I went to Burlington, Vermont, and we shot it there on location. And you had a whole team there. 
we had to be sure you didn't die in the process. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, now, because I'm working, because some of the projects, when they're really that physically challenging, like, I can't handle all the cameras and everything, so I have friends who help me, like, set up the, clean the lenses and set up the tripods and everything so I can be mentally in the space that I need to be in. So, because it's not just myself out there on the frozen lake, I have to be responsible for a lot of people. So, for this one, um, we had two ice divers actually in the lake in case anything happened that they were there and we were all safe. That's great. And how did it feel? Um, it felt amazing. If I had recorded with you right after you got out of the water, what oh would what would I've heard? Um, yeah, again, the tremendous sense of relief because you prepare and you plan and you want it to go a certain way, but at the same time, you only have like one hour to get the shot and either you do or you don't, you know? So the potential for this epic fail is like massive, you know? And you work so hard to get this one two minute and 20 second video, you know, and you really want to get it. I do. I like, I stop sleeping. I obsess about it. And so um, once we got the shot and I knew we got it, it was like, oh, you know, like this is just, this is euphoric. And you were describing the water. How did, the, how did, how did it feel to be under the water? It was gorgeous. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, these frozen lakes, the water is this like thick green, emerald green color. And um, the day we shot it on the lake, it was actually minus 10 degrees and incredibly windy. So it was really loud and freezing, freezing, freezing. So by the time I got into the water, it was actually warmer in the water than it was on the surface of the lake. And it was so quiet and it was so peaceful. And I opened my eyes and I was actually holding myself under the lake. And I held myself for as long as I could and just like took in this completely like enveloping peaceful experience. Wow. Yeah, it was gorgeous. And you have a, a, an incredible costume that you wore. You looked like a fire goddess or something. You looked so tall. I mean, you're tall, but you just looked so, the perspective, you looked like a goddess hmm. of some kind, a flaming goddess. That's nice, thank you. Yeah, it's a contrast to the kind of icy, cold New England landscape in a lot of ways. Um, and it's all mirrored after a William Turner painting, uh, the color palette for the piece. I wanted it to be like this very bright, vibrant color. And you had a specially designed soundtrack. For, for the video, right? I did, yeah. I worked with an incredible musician, Jason Ajemian. He's an experimental jazz composer, and he wrote all the music for the audio for the video. Well, I think we have a sample to listen to. Oh, great.
Hi there, that was actually the sunrise ceremony that Antonia staged in the space, and we hadn't talked about what the space actually looks like. So maybe let's reel back for a minute and talk about the experience inside the installation, and then we'll listen to the performance audio. Um, yeah, so in the exhibition, there's an installation of 90 night-blooming jasmine plants. They're all in boxes suspended from the ceiling. And like the name implies, these plants release this beautiful smell at night. And now I have them all on lights. So when you go into the gallery during the day, it's actually dark in the space, and the plants think it's nighttime, so they release the smell. So you walk through this maze of plants, and then you experience this incredible smell, and then you arrive at the video. And then every day at 5.30, um, there's a different piece of music that we just heard um, that starts to, so the video shuts off, and then this new audio track comes on, and then all the lights are synced to this music, and they start coming on one by one. There's 30 of them all around the space. And then the lights stay on, and then it's like daytime. Uh, in the show when it's actually night. So they're flipped. And this happens at 5.30 every day and only for a few more days. Maybe not oh, even. The sh maybe not even. Yeah, because, <laughs> oh, because of our hurricane. hurricane. I actually just got a call from Locust Projects that um, because there's so much audio equipment and technical equipment, AV equipment in the show, um, they're worried about roof, roof leaks, which every Miami building is worried about whenever we get more than like 30 minutes of rain. So we might actually take down all the equipment from the gallery today, but I think it's actually like perfectly poetically poignant because the whole show is about this idea of also the sublime, you know, like man's powerlessness in the face of nature. And then what better way to end the show with like this huge like tempest coming to Miami, like this massive hurricane comes and that's it. That's like the grand finale of this whole show that's about nature. So I think it's kind of perfect. It is poetic. It is poetic. In its way. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll we'll be grateful for that, that we, we got to experience it. And if you didn't, uh, on Antonia's website, you can watch the video that you're going to hear now of the reenactment of her walk across a frozen lake. Mm -hmm.
do you feel? How do you feel after hearing that, listeners? <laughs> you didn't hear a crashing sound, like a big crash. It was sort of just like. Yeah, it's like a building tension. Mm-hmm. And you can hear the crunching of the, the feet on the ice. Mm-hmm. My friend Jason actually, he lives in New York, but now he also lives in Alaska. And he said he, when he was thinking about how to describe it, it was like melting glaciers is the sound that he was sort of channeling. And it's all written on a stand-up bass, which I really love. So it's one instrument that he just plays and gets to have this like enormous range. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about the title of the show as one last note? Sure. Um, it is a line from a Dave Eggers book, um, and it's just tucked in. It's one sentence, and it's tucked like halfway into the middle of this book, and I just saw it, and I loved the range. Um, Under the water was sand, then rocks, miles of rocks, then fire. Um, and I like that sense of travel in that sentence. Like it starts with water and it ends with fire. And it's kind of very open. And I guess it is a little ambiguous, but I like it because I don't know. I always think, I think of the poem and like the show in a lot of the ways as a poem. Like poems have a lot of like shifts and jumps that happen. And I think that um, the show has that sense of movement as well. I think so too. Well, <laughs> what are you going to break through next? Oh, um, well, actually, this show um, is, I think, a very kind of transitional sh uh, piece for me. Um, now, in terms of, like, the installation and the idea that the visit, like, the viewer is walking through these plants and having this kind of, like, experience before they get to the video, I like that they have um, their own physical moment. And so a lot of the, now my next project is I'm removed from it completely and I'm creating surrogate experiences for the audience. So I'm going to have a show at Spinello Projects in the spring and I'm creating this kinetic sculpture that shoots. Um, I'm not going to say too much, but it shoots objects at this like kind of screen and the audience is standing behind it. And although they're safe, they are supposed to feel this violence occurring in front of them. So um, I'm removing myself from the work now. And the comment you were making with that? Um, well, the objects that we're shooting are barricades. And I think the barricade is sort of this ubiquitous symbol right now in the moment. Um, like, you see them everywhere. And especially in the U.S., they're such a politically charged object. Um, you know, they're used to kind of, like, control... Uh, like physical bodies in space, you know, on both sides of um, like the political hand. So um, I just think that it's sort of capturing what's going on on the streets for a lot of Americans these days and in the world. You know, there's like psychological barricades, like or what's going on in Syria, like that's a kind of barricade or a wall between the U.S. and Mexico is like a barricade. Um, so yeah, there's we're shooting barricades at a larger barricade and the audience is behind it. So. Um, yeah, I just think it's like a relevant type of piece, like what um, the last artist was talking about, you know, like politically, kind of trying to react to it and make something about it. And I'd agree uh, when I'm thinking of you as well, that your work, no matter what comment you're making, is so beautifully executed. Mm -hmm. And that you, you're attentive to beauty as well. And I, I love that. I, it's something we can't forget, a role that art has to play that's transcendent of, uh, but also brings to consciousness some major issues 
because it makes people pause and look. So I really appreciate that you are here for us today and appearing on our show. Thank you I'm, so much for having me. This has yeah, been fun. It's just been super. My mm -hmm. Our first Fresh Art International show on Jolt Radio. I'm Kathy Bird, and I was just speaking with Antonia Wright, a Miami-based artist who's a rising star and got so many exciting projects ahead of her. I can't wait to see what happens next. Mm. Thank you for listening to our broadcast from Miami. Today's guests were Joyce Scott and Antonia Wright. We appreciate that you were here to celebrate with us my first five years of podcasting. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk on Jolt Radio.